Hey everyone, this is Nick. Real quick before we get started in our free online ground school lesson, I just want to talk about our new spring scholarships. Every year we've been giving out $1,000 scholarships and we give out four a year. And last year we started doing something different in the spring. So Part-Time Pilot donates $1,000 to the scholarship in the summer, in the fall, in the winter. And then in the spring, we also donate $1,000, but we donate it to a GoFundMe. And then we try and get other people to donate so we have bigger pot and have a more a larger impact on what we can do when we give out the scholarship money. All the funds go to the scholarship winner. I don't keep a single dime. The only people that get anything from this other than the scholarship winners are GoFundMe. I think they have like a 2 or 3% you know, fee that they take. But I use GoFundMe so this is completely transparent. So last year we raised almost $5,000 and this year we have to beat it. In the show notes is the link to the GoFundMe. Now I don't like asking for, for handouts or anything like that. And I understand that everyone is strapped with money, especially when it comes to funding flight training. So if you can't give any, don't worry about it. But if you are in the position where you can and you want to have an impact and help some other people out, we would really, really appreciate it. Even if you just shared the GoFundMe on your social media, it would be really, really helpful. So just check it out in the link in the show notes for the 2024 Spring Part-Time Pilot GoFundMe Scholarship. Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now after three years, five flight instructors and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hello and welcome in everybody to the part-time pilot audio ground school podcast i'm your host nick smith and today is episode number 70 and we are in december of 2023 that is absolutely insane today's episode we are going to continue on the ground school read off go through every single one of our online ground school lessons for free here on the podcast we're going to continue our section on airport operations we are almost done we have airport operations section, we'll finish up, then pilot control and ground reference maneuvers, then navigation, then emergencies, then night operations. Those are four and a half sections left, but inside airport operations section, we're going to do collision avoidance and traffic, and then airport light signals. We're talking about all the stuff kind of that you need to work around airports. We've already covered kind of airport information, communications. We even had that bonus episode to play you some ATC type communications and talk about that flight service stations and control centers, and then flight plans, which we talked about in the last episode. So 
Before we get to that, I just want to read off some reviews here. We'll be real quick with these. One is from Robert Shank. Five stars. This is as close to having a private dot dot dot. This is as close to having a private instructor as you can get throughout the audio ground school. Nick goes over everything possible. If you have questions or are uncertain of an area, you can personally email, use the AI chat function, or put it on Facebook, and it is usually the first to respond with an answer and break it down so you'll understand. Thank you so much, Robert. I am so happy to hear that people are using the AI, our new AI chat function. If you haven't heard, we trained our own AI, so we took ChatGPT. And then we trained it on our content, which is based around what the FA wants you to learn, right? And so I kind of did a test. And whereas ChatGPT might give you sort of an answer that keeps everybody happy and isn't necessarily wrong, our AI chatbot, which you can only access through part-time pilot, gives answers specific to what the FA would look for. So it has all that context and it trained, especially, couldn't find that word, for that. So glad people are using it. But I also want to mention that it is, and this Robert shows this, we did not mean this for a replacement of us, right? Of me responding to your questions over email or in our Facebook study group. We are still here. So if you want to talk to a human, that is not gone away at all. This chat is just another great tool that I think that I use AI a lot in my own life. And it's a great learning tool. So I wanted to put that in there and it's right there on every lesson. So it's just quick access. You don't have to pull up your email, go to the Facebook study group or anything like that. Super cool and useful tool. And I'm glad that people are using it. Next review here is five stars by Eduardo. Great for busy student pilots. I found this ground school while searching for aviation podcasts to listen to while working. Once I got through half the podcast episodes, I was convinced to enroll in the ground school in preparation for my flight lessons. I was looking for a good value ground school and I definitely found it. Would recommend part-time pilot for anyone looking to keep lessons fresh in their mind while they work or go about their day. This is also great for people that learn through multiple learning styles. Appreciate that, Eduardo. All right, let's read off one more here. And this one is five stars. The podcast is free, free in all caps. I started by listening to the free podcast Nick started. I appreciate how thoroughly each topic is covered. It's easy to move through one lesson after the other. And if you need a refresher on a particular topic, the episode titles act as a chapter marker for you. I appreciated the work put into the podcast so much that I knew I would mesh with the online ground school. On top of that, before I purchased, I reached out with a quick question and it got back to me extremely quickly with the information I needed. That was by Jeffrey. And thank you so much, Jeffrey, for the reviews. We've gotten a lot of reviews lately and I really, really appreciate you guys leaving a review. If you want to leave a review, maybe it'll get read off here. Go to trustpilot.com and just search part-time pilot. You can see and read all our reviews there. And then also, if you have Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review there, and it really, really helps us out. So thank you guys for that. Let's move on now with our our question, our kind of student question of the day. And this question is going to be from the Facebook study group. So again, if you want to join us on our Facebook study group, it's all about private pilot studying, ground school studying type stuff. And so there's no dumb question. I will answer. Someone from part-time pilot will answer. We'll make sure that everything gets answered from one of us, but also you'll get the perspective of other student pilots, private pilots. One great example was we just had someone take and pass their checkride. Congrats. We actually had three people take and pass their checkride on one day yesterday. I think that's the most we ever had in one day. Uh, We were three for three. It was fantastic. And one of those people very kindly, give him a shout out, Keith, gave a great review to everyone on the group. He showed his 
binder that he makes, what he put in the binder, how he prepared for the written exam, or sorry, the check write exam and all that stuff and what he put in his binder to prepare for that as well. So things like that, or we just had two people pass their tests. Actually, three people passed the written test. We got a 90% by Michael, a 95 by Jason, and then in the comments of Jason's post, Abapril got a 90%, and then Abapril went and broken down a great review of all the questions, all the topics of the questions. Like there were a lot of NTSB questions, glass flight decks, airports, ATC clearance questions, minimum fuel questions, magneto questions, safety belts, VFR cruising altitude, flight level, density altitude, VOR questions, control position for taxi and wind, class G airspace, cloud clearance, wind socks at airports, and hydroplaning. So those are some of the things that they remember. So this is the type of value you get in, in this group. So I highly, highly recommend going in this group. And one of the questions, the question I want to talk about today that was asked in this group was the question on why we would ever want to know the arm when we're doing weight and balance. And so if you know that the weight and balance is all about calculating the moment of each position. So you have different positions in the aircraft. You have, you know, the front seat position, you have the rear seat, you have the baggage, you have the fuel, and then they're all measured a distance from a, a datum. And that datum is usually right behind the firewall, right in front of your dashboard in the cockpit. And then they're all measured their distance back from that. And that distance is called the arm. And whenever you have an arm, so whenever you have a distance from a center of gravity to a weight, that distance is called the arm, the distance from the center of gravity to a weight. And so if you imagine a plank perfectly balanced on like a pyramid, right, a little point, and then you put a weight on one side, you're going to have an arm, a distance from the middle, that pyramid point to that weight, that's going to be your arm. And then what happens is the arm times the weight of that mass that we put on that plank, the arm times the weight is going to give you the moment. It's going to create a moment. What that moment is, it's like a force around a point. And so, right, if we were to have a perfectly balanced plank and we have 20 pound plate on one end of it, the plank is going to tip to that side, right? That's because you have a moment. And so to balance out the moment, you'd want to put a 20 pound weight on the other side, equal distance from the point, so the same arm to balance it out. So it has the same moment. If you put the 20 pound weight only, let's say the 20 pound weight on the right side was 20 inches away, but the 20 pound weight on the left side, you put it only five inches away. It's not going to have as big of a moment because it doesn't have another kind of word for that is lever arm, right? So it's not going to have as big a lever arm. It's not going to create as big a moment. So you're still going to have an unbalanced. So that's what weight and balance and moments is sort of all about. Someone asked like, why would we ever need to find the arm? And that's a good question. And it's probably honestly something that the FAA is never really going to ask you to calculate the arm. Could if you wanted to, right? So moment equals weight times arm. And so usually when we're calculating the center of gravity of our aircraft, we find the weights of everything in our aircraft. Then we find the moment of everything in our aircraft. And we do that by taking the weight times the arm to get the moment. And then we add up all the moments to get a total moment. We add up all the weight to get a total weight. And then we take the total moment divided by the total weight to get the center of gravity. So that center of gravity is actually the arm of our total airplane's weight. So it's the distance from the datum point that our center of gravity is. It tells us where our center of gravity is. It's the arm of our total aircraft weight. So 
that's the only arm that you would ever be asked to calculate in terms of individual arms, like the front passengers or the fuel arms. You'll never really be asked to calculate that. But again, you could using that moment equals weight times arm equation, just rearranging it to solve for arm, right? Arm equals moment divided by weight. But usually the FAA written is not going to ask you for arm. What it's going to do, it's either going to give you an arm and a weight so you can calculate moment by weight times arm, or it's going to give you a weight and a moment for all these individual weights. Like I believe it's figures 32 and 33 of the FAA Airman testing supplement, the figures that you'll be using on the FAA written exam. Those show tables of weights for each position on the aircraft, right? It will have uh, front passenger position, rear passenger position, fuel, and it's going to list weights. And then in the next column, it's going to list the associated moment with those weights. So what the FAA in this figure and what some aircraft do, I believe Cessnas do it like this, they have already calculated, they've already done the weight times the arm equals a moment. And they're just listing the weight and moment there for you to make it easier for you so you don't have to do that calculation. But if you look on that figure at the top of each, each one of those tables, so like for the table for front passengers, it'll say arm equals like 75 inches or whatever. So it tells you the arm. So you could look and you could take in each column, right? In the weight column, you could find a weight of like 40 pounds or something and multiply it by the arm that's listed there. And it's going to give you that moment that's listed. So they've already done that calculation for you. So all you have to do is you have to just find the weight and then jot down the moment. And then once you have all the weights and moments, you add them all up. But there also might be a figure where you have to use like a graph where you match the weight and arm on a graph and that gives you the moment. So there's different ways the data can be given to you. You're likely never going to actually calculate an arm. The only arm you will calculate is the CG, which is basically the arm of the total airplane. But again, knowing how that equation works can help you, right? Moment equals weight times arm or right you can rearrange that to find weight or find arm as well and then one last thing i want to say one thing that'll make it easier to know that equation is on that fa figure where it lists weights with moments it might have weights like 10 pounds 20 pounds 30 pounds 40 pounds and then it'll have an associated moment with each of those for like let's say baggage but if you have like 17 pounds of bags you're going to have to interpolate between the 20 pound line row of data and the 10 pound row of data, right? You're gonna have to interpolate for 17 pounds. Or you can just take 17 pounds and you can find the arm value that's listed above the table. Let's say it's 80 inches and just do 17 times 80 and boom, you get your exact moment for 17 pounds and you didn't have to interpolate because interpolation can be a little cumbersome sometimes. Just knowing that equation and how it works can be very, very helpful and useful but you're hardly ever going to calculate an arm unless, of course, it's the total CG of an aircraft. All right, so great question there in the study group, the Ground School study group on Facebook. So thank you guys for your questions. And there are no dumb questions ever. So good job. Keep asking those and without fear. You can even leave one anonymously. So go ahead and do that. It helps everyone out when, you know, we get a group question. Thank you for that. Let's do our lesson and our lessons and again, we're on section 14. So if you're following along in the ground school, which I highly recommend you do, this is the step one online ground school private pilot lessons is where all the lessons, audio lessons, quizzes, visual aids, video lessons, everything is built into the syllabus here. We're in section 14 on aircraft operations. And we are on lesson five of that section on collision avoidance and traffic. So let's get to collision avoidance and traffic. 
Traffic accidents are the most prevalent near an airport on clear days. I'm going to repeat that. Air traffic accidents are the most prevalent near an airport on clear days. But a pilot still needs to be on constant alert to avoid collisions in all situations. In order to avoid collisions with traffic, there are several factors that we must consider and practice. The first one of those is visual scanning techniques. Every 5 to 10 minutes on a cross-country flight, and whenever a pilot can spare free time during flight near airports, they should be visually scanning around them for traffic. During daytime flights, a pilot should use the scanning technique of not exceeding 10 degrees of eye movement at a time and view each 10 degree sector for at least one second. The eye can see 20 degrees at any one time, but focusing the eye is most effective in 10 degree sectors. Simply start from your far left field of view and focus on the 10 degree sector for one to two seconds before moving to the right for the next 10 degree sector. Even in daylight, aircraft can be extremely difficult to see because of the effects of sunlight and background pictures that can almost camouflage an aircraft. Don't believe me? Wait until you get up there with your flight instructor, and if you have already been up there, then you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You're in the pattern, and ATC says, you know, you're number three for landing, and you're like, number three? I can't see anybody in front of me. Well, this is because, you know, terrain, towns, things like that are kind of obscuring your blue. If it was just like, you know, maybe in some areas where if you just had a backdrop of green trees, like in the Pacific Northwest or something, it might be easier to see a white aircraft in that backdrop or maybe over a large field or something, wherever you are, wherever you fly, your train is going to be different. It might be harder or easier to see. But once you're up there, it is, it is hard to see these aircraft. So even in daylight. Aircraft heading directly at you can start small and become larger very quickly. One second you may see nothing and next it may be too late. If you are both traveling at 120 knots but heading straight at one another, you're approaching one another at a rate of double that. So you're approaching each other at a rate of 240 knots. Receptors called cones within the retina of the eye are stimulated by light and send signals to your brain during daylight hours. But during the dark of night, night vision is left completely up to receptors called rods surrounding the retina. Peripheral vision is mostly conducted by these rods. Because of this, looking at objects off-center is the preferred method at night. In other words, during the day, the best way to see something is to look directly at the center of it in these 10-degree sectors. But during the night, the best way to see something is to the side of it and have your peripheral or rods focus on the object. At night, there is a blind spot at the center of your eye. Pilots use a scanning technique that consists of slow, gradual eye movements from left to right to allow for off-center viewing to scan the observable area at night. This technique is the most effective way to use your eyes at night because it allows the rods of your eyes, again, which work better at night, to have a full panorama of visibility and therefore give you a full panorama of visibility. So we talked about previously that one of the reasons you might want to get flight following and have ATC radar services when you're outside the vicinity of your aircraft is to get information on traffic. So the primary objective of flight following is to provide clearance and traffic advisors, right, to those using the service. This is why I use flight following anytime I can. There is so much to do inside the cockpit in terms of aviating, navigating, and communicating that scanning for traffic can sometimes be put to the side when it shouldn't. Having another set of eyes, especially on radar, even if you have a co-pilot or your instructor, 
again, I mentioned it's hard to see aircraft when you're up there. So having that, those eyes on radar can be very, very beneficial and could save your life. When flight following or ATC notifies you of nearby traffic, they will tell you the location of the traffic relative to your ground track. So when they see your radar image, right, your aircraft's radar, blanking on the word here, but it's like the radar ping, radar signature, that, that's what I'm looking for, on their map, they right, and then overlaid, they have all the aircraft radar that they're picking up. So they see your aircraft traveling over that map, and so they see your ground track. So they see the traffic relative to your ground track. And they will tell you the position of the traffic relative to your ground track in terms of a clock, where the 12 o'clock position is directly in front of you, 3 o'clock is to your right, 6 o'clock is directly behind you, and 9 o'clock directly to your left. So you want to picture an image of a clock, right? And imagine you make that clock two-dimensional, right? Let's say you just have a piece of paper with a picture of a clock. You cut out that clock and you set it on the ground, okay? And then you stand right in the middle of it. So it's a big, big cutout of a clock. It's on the ground. You stand right in the middle of it. And then you face towards the 12, okay? You're standing in the middle and you're facing towards the 12. What's to the right of you? That's 3 o'clock. What's behind you? That's 6 o'clock. What's to your left? That's 9 o'clock. What's ahead of you? Again, that's 12 o'clock. So this is how... ATC is going to communicate to you where the traffic is at. If ATC calls out traffic 10 o'clock, two miles southbound, then again, imagine yourself, there's a big printout of a clock set on the ground and you're standing in the middle of the clock, you know, right where the dials spin around that middle part and you're facing 12 o'clock. So traffic 10 o'clock, that's going to be towards the 10. You turn towards the 10. So nine is directly left. So it's a little bit off to your left and great not directly off your left wing a little to the front of you a little to the front of your left wing right and in the 10 o'clock position and it's two miles away from you and it's traveling southbound so if you were traveling northbound right then 12 o'clock is in the direction of north nine o'clock is the direction of west so 10 o'clock would be in like the northwest west direction and so it'd be two miles in that direction to your left off your left wing and it would be traveling in the opposite direction as you. So those are the kind of things that take a little bit of time to get used to, but something that I believe is very beneficial when up there is an easy way to do it, and I think that's why they do it. If you see the traffic they're talking about, state your call sign and say traffic in sight. If you don't see the traffic they're talking about, state your call sign and say looking or looking for traffic. Then once you have found the traffic, let them know that traffic is in sight. Once you have seen the traffic and reported to ATC, they may or may not tell you to make a specific maneuver to avoid. If they do, it'll be something like this. Cherokee 7-7, Charlie, turn right. Heading 110, at or below 4,500. Simply do as they say and repeat the request. At all times, you are the PIC and it is up to you to determine the safety of yourself and your aircraft. ATC may not tell you to do anything. In that case, you will need to value what the aircraft is doing and possibly make an avoidance maneuver. ATC may or may not be talking to the other aircraft. If you are talking to flight following and outside of an airspace, the other aircraft, if VFR, is not required to be talking to flight following. This means that ATC could tell you to do nothing and continue flying because they think you are fine, but the other aircraft may perform a maneuver that ATC was not anticipating and it is up to you to keep an eye on that aircraft and keep yourself safe. So even when you have flight following, you cannot completely rely on them to keep you safe and away from other 
traffic. And remember, you can deviate from ATC clearances only in the case where it's for collision avoidance or an emergency. And you can deviate enough to meet that emergency. And then you may have to, you know, submit a report if requested by ATC on why you did that. And you'd want to tell them why you did it directly after. As a PIC, you have that right to meet the emergency and to avoid the traffic. If you are near an uncontrolled airport when not talking to flight following and not talking to a control tower, you need to be using Unicom or CTAF frequencies for the airport. All other traffic should be doing the same and this is the only way to communicate and avoid one another. Each pilot should make a call 5 to 10 miles before entering an airport's traffic pattern and state the traffic frequency, color and type of aircraft, altitude, position, intentions, and repeat the traffic frequency name. Then, just before entering the pattern, upon entering each leg of the traffic pattern, as well as taking off and departing the airport, they should repeat this list of items. Here's a breakdown of what to say when entering a pattern, flying the pattern, landing, and then taxiing, taking off, and departing at an uncontrolled airport when using the CTOF Unicom. When you are 5 to 10 miles, sooner the better, prior to entering the pattern at an uncontrolled airport, Here's an example of what you might say. Let's say the airport is Cairo, called Cairo. So it would be Cairo traffic, Beige Cherokee at 5,000 feet, 5,000 feet and descending, five miles to the north. We'll be entering right downwind for landing, runway 27, Cairo traffic. So you say what frequency you're on, right? The Cairo traffic, which is the Unicom CTAF, your color and aircraft, Beige Cherokee, your altitude, 5,000 feet, and what kind of what you're doing if you're climbing or descending then you'll want to add that as well so 5,000 feet and descending five miles to the north if you have a you know a common known kind of checkpoint if there's like a lake or something you could say five miles to the north over or you could say you know over and say the name of the lake or whatever the known kind of checkpoint visual checkpoint or nav aid is around the area and then you say what you want to do we'll be entering right downward for landing runway 27 and you want to say the runway and then again at the end say Cairo traffic that way because there might be other people using this, you know, frequency and you want to make sure, you know, who you're, you're meaning that message to. And so people who are also Cairo traffic, right, they will perk up and be like, oh, okay, I know you're talking to me. And that's kind of the whole point of that. Okay, and then just before entering the pattern at a 45 degree angle, here's what an example of what you might say. Cairo traffic, Bay Cherokee entering right downwind for landing, runway 27 Cairo traffic. So you say I'm entering the right downwind if, you know, that was not the case if it was a left pattern, right? You had left down one and so on. And then you want to say the runway number and then again, Cairo traffic at the end. Then now you're in the pattern. And just before you turn to base, you'll say Cairo traffic, base Cherokee, turning to right base for landing runway 27, Cairo traffic. And then just before turning to final, you say Cairo traffic, base Cherokee, turning on to final for landing runway 27, Cairo traffic. And if you were to go, do a touch and go, you would say for touch and goes, runway 27, use for landing, or you can add full stop to make it even more clear what you're doing. And that'll give more information to anyone on the ground who might want to take off, right? So if you're doing a full stop, that tells them it's going to take a little bit longer. If you're doing a touch and go, you know, they'll know what to expect. And then just before taxiing, after you land, you can say Cairo traffic, Bay Cherokee, at runway 27, taxiing the west run-up area, bring taxiway alpha, Cairo traffic. So this is actually before you take off, right? So we kind of switched, all right? So once you land 
right? Let's talk about that. So I, I mentioned the final. And then if you were to land, you could say, you know, which taxiway you're turning off of and then where you're going on the taxiway as well, right? So just every step of the way, you kind of want to give them. So now when you are going to take off and before taxiing, that's when you say, you know, something like Cairo traffic, Beige, Cherokee at runway 27, taxiing to West Runup area via taxiway Alpha, Cairo traffic. Or Cairo traffic base Cherokee at West Runup area, taxiing to runway 27 via taxiway Alpha Cairo traffic. So no matter which way you're going, right? If you're leaving the runway, going to the Runup area, or if you're going to a taxiway or wherever you're going, those examples kind of encompass both of those. But you get the gist. And then just before taking off, you might say Cairo traffic base Cherokee at runway 27, taking off for South departure Cairo traffic. So you just want to add again, say the runway you're taking off of, and then which direction you're departing. And then during climb out, kind of the last call when you're leaving an uncontrolled airport, you would say Cairo traffic base Cherokee departing upwind. So you're departing from the upwind of the pattern for runway 27. Again, so it's the upwind for runway 27. For a southbound departure, that's the direction you're departing in. Climbing to 4,500, that's your goal of where you're climbing to, Cairo traffic. If there is someone else in the pattern or at the airfield, they should be doing the same thing, stating their attentions. If they are not, ask them Cairo traffic, white Cessna just north of the runway, what are your intentions, right? You can just have a conversation with them, try to be brief, try to be clear. And if you really want to know, if you have no idea what they're doing, I had this happen to me as a student pilot on a solo flight, solo cross country flight, and it was really, really nerve wracking. This person was doing like acrobatics and not on any type of CTAF Unicom that I could find. I was going through them and I didn't like it. So you want to, you can, you know, shout them out and say, what are your intentions? If they don't respond, you know, shame on them because it should, but you have to do what you need to do in order to stay safe and nothing wrong with climbing or performing a 360 until the traffic leaves. It's important to remember right away rules, which uh, we'll cover next, but in general landing aircraft have the right of way in these situations and pilots slightly behind and the pattern should stay clear and give enough space for the landing traffic. If an aircraft is already on the runway, allow them to taxi off or take off before getting into final. So just kind of use your best judgment. If someone's already landing, they have let them land first. They have the right of way to land first. And if someone's, you know, about to take off or taxiing before you, you know, just be patient, allow them the time to, to do so. All right, so let's talk about right-of-way rules. This is from 14 CFR 91113, which kind of details the right-of-way rules. When dealing with traffic, particularly when not being advised by ATC, it is of utmost importance that all pilots know and understand their right-of-way rules. Without ATC, pilot-to-pilot communications can even fail or become confusing, as I kind of mentioned with that example of when I was soloing. One pilot might say he, she is turning right, and the other pilot may think he, she is talking about his or her own right and not the pilot who is turning right. There also might be communication failures and a bad radio, or someone using the wrong frequency there needs to be an established set of rules that every pilot knows so that when these communications break down there is still hope for avoiding disaster luckily there is and these are called the right array rules so we'll detail these here an aircraft in distress has a right of way over all other aircraft if two aircraft of the same category are converging but not head-on the aircraft to the right has the right of way there will be no apparent relative motion between your aircraft and the other aircraft when you are both on a collision course with one another. The other aircraft won't look like it's moving relative to you when you're up there, when you're converging. And if this happens, you're both converging, 
the aircraft to the right has a right away okay yeah i mean that's pretty self-explanatory if you look to your left and see the aircraft that you're converging with that means you have the right away if you look to the right and that's where the aircraft is then that aircraft has the right away okay so when pilots are converging head on so again that was a not head-on case when you are converging head-on with another aircraft you're instructed to both turns towards the right so if you're both coming at each other and both aircraft the other aircraft is getting larger and larger turn to the right to avoid them if you both turn to the right you will both avoid each other between aircraft of different categories the following order based off maneuverability determines the right away so you have balloon glider airship parachute weight shift control airplane then rotorcraft so i'll repeat this and we have a mnemonic that i came up with to help you remember this because sometimes the faa written might say which aircraft has a right away and it'll list three of these and you have to determine which one and if you remember this mnemonic which i came up with as b gap war b g a p w a r b gap war or that it's based off maneuverability so the most maneuverable aircraft has the least right of way and the least maneuverable has the most right away so the least maneuverable is the balloon right like a hot air balloon it can't really maneuver around right it can just pretty much go up and down and float in the wind and then you have a glider uh, it's non-powered right so it, it's maneuverable but it can only kind of glide down it can't climb up or do any powered maneuvers then an airship okay that is powered but it's very slow and kind of clunky like a boat then you have a parachute which again you know you can control that and stuff but it's a little more you know if parachute was coming down it could probably maneuver around an airship then you have weight shift control i'm not too knowledgeable on what a, a weight shift control is but i believe it's sort of like a parachute with a motor type on it and you move around some weights to turn or something I, i'm not really sure then you have so we're kind of building up to an airplane at this point then you have the airplane right it's powered it can glide it can turn it can roll it can climb it can descend and then you have rotorcraft which is a helicopter right it's obviously the most maneuverable if it's just floating there and you threw something, you know, you threw a missile at it. You always see in the movies, it veers out off, right? It's very maneuverable compared to the, all the others. So it has the least right away. And so that mnemonic B gap war is B for balloon, G for glider, A for airship, P for parachute, W for weight shift control, A for airplane, R for rotorcraft. So if you remember that B gap war, and then you remember that it's based off of maneuverability, that the least maneuverable has the most right away, you can remember that B is for balloon, the R at the end is for rotorcraft, the A towards the end is airplane, and you kind of fill in the gaps after that. Then you have a few other kind of rules here for right-of-way. An aircraft towing something has a right-of-way over all other engine-driven aircraft. Okay, so that's engine-driven aircraft if an aircraft is towing something. If an aircraft is overtaking another aircraft, the aircraft being overtaken has a right-of-way and the aircraft overtaking should pass on the right. So this is kind of like the opposite of like if you're driving on the freeway and you're passing a car, you usually are told to pass to the left. An aircraft, you want to pass to the right, but you have to give way to the aircraft that you're overtaking. They have the right of way. So if they turn, it's your job to get out of their way. So you want to fly off to the right and give plenty of space around them when you overtake them. An aircraft landing has a right-of-way over an aircraft in flight, but this rule should not be taken advantage of in order to cut in line and land before another aircraft, and is generally saved for aircraft that need to land or are already in their final approach. 
So you can't say like, you know, let's say there's a aircraft on a long final and you're in the pattern on downwind and you're like, oh my God, this guy's taking, this guy or girl's taking so long. I'm just going to call short final and I have the right of way because now I'm landing all of a sudden, right? <laughs> yep, here I am. I'm landing. So I have the right of way. You know, no, you got to, you can't take advantage of that and cut in line. They don't want situations like that. If aircraft is landing already in final and you're coming in and you're, you're not in the pattern right yet, then the aircraft landing on final has the right of way. All right. So I made a video for the where to look for ATC traffic call out. So that whole clock thing kind of visualize that for you guys. I'll throw that in the show notes for you guys. And then just a, a couple things I want to sort of review that you might be asked about on the written exam. Most midair collisions happen during clear days. Scanning during the day, you want to use you know, the cones of your eyes, which is centered vision, and you don't want to exceed 10 degrees of eye movement at a time. So 10 degree sectors for at least one second. Scanning at night, you want to use the rods, which are for your peripheral vision. So you want to do slow, gradual eye movements from left to right to allow for off-center viewing to scan the observable area. Uh, when two aircraft are converging, each pilot shall alter course to the right. When in distress, aircraft in distress has the right of way over all others. When an aircraft is being overtaken, the overtaking aircraft has the right of way. If an aircraft appears to be stationary in front of you, it is likely you're on a direct collision course. Aircraft category right-of-way rules is B-gap war. That, in terms of maneuverability, the lowest maneuverability gets the most right-of-way. So it's balloon, glider, airship, parachute, weight shift control, airplane, and rotorcraft. And the final thing I also want to mention is traffic, the 12 o'clock. Just remember that. They're going to tell you in relation to that clock and in relation to your ground track. And then I think that's it, actually. Quick review, kind of remembering just those facts for your FA written exam will help you a lot. All right, well, let's continue on. Let's get one more lesson here. This is the lesson on airport light signals. Again, we're in section 14, I believe. It's lesson six in section 14 on airport lights signals. In this section, we're going to talk about airport lights other than taxiway and runway light. In particular, we'll talk about airport beacon lights and light guns used during radio failures. We'll get to the other type of light here shortly in the next couple lessons. So airport beacons. Most airports have beacons. If you see an airport's beacon, it can tell you a lot of information. For example, seeing a white and yellow flashing light from the air during the day tells you that below you is a water airport and either the ground visibility is less than three statute miles and or the visibility is less than a thousand feet. Each type of airport uses its own colors for the flashing beacon and most airports will turn on their beacons during daylight hours if the ground visibility is less than three statute miles and or the visibility or the ceiling is less than a thousand feet. So basically if it's less than VFR conditions during the day, they're going to turn on their beacon and that's a good indication. It tells you a lot of information about the conditions there at the airport and what type of airport it is. So here are the different airport beacon colors. You have a civilian land airport people listening to this podcast will mostly use and that's flashing white and green so if you're looking for an airport that's on the land and it's building it's not military right you know most of the airports that student pilots are going to be learning at you're going to be looking for a flashing white and green beacon so if you're out there you're lost or something and you're looking for your airport and you see a beacon that you think is yours make sure it's white and green if you're going to civilian land airport next one is a water airport those are flashing white and yellow a heliport is flashing white, yellow, and green. So it'll be white, yellow, green, white, yellow, green, white, yellow, green. So that's three colors. And then a military airport is going to be two quick white flashes 
alternating with a green flash. So it's going to be like white, green, white, 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 right? So those are military. So two white flashes and a green is military. One white and one green is civilian. One white, one yellow is water. And then one white, one yellow, one green is a heliport. And I have images here of what they kind of look like. They'll be spinning around on a tower. These lights will be spinning around. And so that's how you kind of see flashes is you only see it when it's pointed right at you. So when you'll see a green and then a white. So that's kind of how they work. So let's get on to radio failures and the lights you might see during a radio failure. It's extremely important that a pilot obeys the instruction of ATC, but the ultimate responsibility of the safety of the aircraft belongs to the pilot in command. If an emergency and the safety of the aircraft or people aboard the aircraft are in danger, the pilot may deviate from ATC clearances with the understanding that an explanation is required. Without an emergency, however, ATC instruction must follow. This includes the case where radio communications has been lost. In this scenario, the FAA has established a set of rules for light signals made from the control tower. Now, these are from 14 CFR 91.125, called ATC light signals, and they change whether you're in flight or on ground. So this is a condition where you've lost your radio, and we'll go more into detail on the procedures of losing your radio during the emergency uh, section on emergencies. But so you've lost your radio, and you need to communicate with the tower, whether that's on the ground or you know, in flight. Now, some of these situations, people are asking, like, why would you ever need this information when you're on the ground or in flight? I don't know, but they have, they got a signal for it. So <laughs> here it is. So when you're in flight, a steady green light, and this is going to come from the control tower. So where the ATC, they're going to have an actual handheld light that they're going to stick out the window of the control tower. You're going to look for the windows of the control tower at the top. That's where you're going to look for this light. A steady green light is going to tell you when you're flying that you're clear to land. A flashing green light is going to tell you to return to the airport. So that kind of means like come into the pattern, right? Return to the airport. You can come back. You can enter the pattern. Uh, that's a flashing green. That would be followed if you wanted to land, right? You would have to wait for the steady green that would tell you to land. A steady red light means do not land and circle. So if you're in the pattern, just continue to circle in the pattern. If you're outside the pattern right and you're circling waiting for that light signal just continue to circle do not land for steady red light a flashing red light means the airport is unsafe do not land so that a flashing red light would tell me go find somewhere else to land right flashing white light has no meaning when in flight so there's no nothing for that alternating red and green light means exercise extreme caution that's kind of like you're on your own <laughs> so that's flashing red and green alternating red and green now on the ground Steady green light means clear for takeoff, so that's kind of obvious, like green for go, so in the light it means land, and on ground it means takeoff. Flashing green light means clear to taxi, so if you are, you know, maybe at a some hangar and you wanted a taxi, I don't know how ATC would know, they might flash you a green light and say, hey, you can taxi. Steady red light is stop where you are, so if you're taxiing around, you get steady red light, just stop. That's easy to remember, stop, like a red stop sign, right? Flashing red light means taxi clear of runway let's say you landed let's say you're up in the air right you get the steady green light cleared and land because you have no comms you land and then you're kind of taking a while to get off the runway and atc has more traffic coming in they might flash you this flashing red light that says taxi clear the runway like, get off the runway flashing white light means return to starting point so like turn around go back to where you started your taxi and then alternating red and green again means use extreme caution. So we have an image here 
that shows all these lights and what they mean for aircraft. We also have a video so that you can visualize this. We have some animations in there and stuff that are pretty cool. So you can kind of get a good visualization of what these mean and what you would do in an aircraft. Again, you must remember that it is the safety of you, your aircraft, and your passengers. If any of those are in doubt by following any of these light signals, you as a PIC are allowed to make the decision to counter these instructions in order to keep your aircraft safe. In all other cases that you do not have an explanation relative safety, you must follow these instructions. So again, we're just talking about like the rule that you can deviate from ATC in order to meet an emergency. And when you do, you're going to have to explain yourself. So if you don't have a good explanation, you can't, and that includes these light signals. These are an extension of ATC instructions. So that's kind of what I meant by repeating that rule there. And yeah, so that is it's memorize those light signals. I know that the FAA written likes to test uh, at least one question probably on those light signals. So memorize those light signals there. And as well, you might get asked on, you know, what is white and yellow beacon? You know, what does that mean? So another good thing to memorize those beacons. All right. So that is it for this episode. We will continue on next week. And we're going to continue on with Lessons 7 and 8. We have Taxiway and Runway Lighting Systems in Lesson 7. And then Lesson 8, Taxiway and Runway Signs and Marking. A lot of little stuff to go through in those lessons. So I think we should be able to get through both in a single episode. Might be a little bit longer, but we'll see what happens. Last thing I wanted to mention, I on the last episode, I mentioned that I would be doing a bonus episode of a mock checkride oral exam. I had a volunteer who came and said, you know, they're preparing for the checkride. They actually passed their checkride, and we did do a mock checkride. But funny story, so I used Zoom. You guys are all familiar with Zoom for a meeting, you know, a virtual meeting. And so I had my Zoom account. We set it up. We had a great mock oral. It went awesome, super valuable content, all that stuff. But at the beginning, I wanted to hand him the controls of the Zoom so that he could show when I asked him a question, you know, in our mock oral. When I said, hey, you know, show me your route of flight, our route of flight for our cross-country scenario, right, on your sectional chart. He had the sectional chart pulled up, and he could show me, and he guided me through the route and all that stuff. I needed him to share his screen and have control. So when I did that, and this is like a PSA to anyone who uses Zoom and wants to record the Zoom meeting, I don't know why they have this in their software, and it really ticks me off. But the moral of the story is I did not record our mock check ride so i will not be able to have it as a podcast or as a video for people but i plan to do another one in the future so we'll have that later on in the future i'll probably wait to do some check ride prep stuff when i finish the written exam lessons here on the podcast but moral of the story so if you use zoom right and you hand off you make someone else the host so that they can share their screen and then you click record so I clicked record. I wanted to record the meeting. Because they were the host, a message popped up and said, do you want to allow Nick to record? So the person I was with, they clicked yes. And we all saw that. We're like, yes, boom. Okay, cool. We're going to record. I didn't realize, and I think this is kind of dumb by Zoom. After that, it didn't automatically record. So I thought we were recording after that when he clicked yes. Boom. I had clicked record. He clicked yes. I thought we were good to go. But it never recorded. I had to click it again, and I did not know I had to click record again. Anyone out there who uses Zoom for recording, if you ever pass off the controls, just know to really make sure you see that it's recording because it's going to not record. So, and uh, But I was happy to 
help this person out and help them pass their, hopefully help them pass their, their check ride. Time not lost for sure, but we will get that to you guys, that bonus content to you guys sometime in the near future. All right. So thanks for listening as always. And please leave us a review, share this podcast. It really helps us out and talk to you guys later. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot now of course it's not that we're not thinking but it's that we understand things like weather aerodynamics what our instruments are telling us what atc is telling us we have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them and when we don't have to think about them we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations if we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with atc for bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. 
when I say modern day student pilot, I just say modern day part-time student pilot. Because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read. So for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos, or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.